Welcome to the Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. And this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, I moderate a live and interactive retail thought leadership panel, live from the Association for Corporate Growth's virtual stage here in Toronto. ACG brings together mid-market private equity players, many of whom have a keen interest in the retail sector in Canada. Joining me on this panel, the new retail reality was Deanne J. Brisebois, CEO of Retail Council of Canada, Scott Arsenault, President of Rens Pets, and Eric Close, CEO from MEC, along with Dave Poirier from the Poirier Group. Backing up to when we took over the business, I mean, it was a pretty gutsy move uh, to take over a business which was highly, highly, highly political in Canada, um, as it was a co-op and, 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 and really seen as kind of the, the, the gold standard in, in our sector in retailing. Um, you know, to having a private equity firm out of the U.S. taking it over, so we had to deal with a lot of the the, the politics, the uh, the the media, um, and then buying a business out of CCAA in the middle of a pandemic is not exactly the you know the um, uh, the, the 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 walk in the daisies. It was it was a pretty complex thing. Let's listen in now. So I'm Jan Breesbluff, President CEO of Retail Council of Canada. It's the uh, industry association that represents uh, retailers right across the country. Uh, we have a we represent about forty five thousand storefronts, and our membership um, also represents about seventy five percent of total core retail sales in Canada. Uh, the membership is comprised of independent one store operators, chains, and uh, mass merchants, multinationals in all the categories, both online and in brick and mortar. And uh, our main focus is advocacy for the retail sector. We do a lot of work in obviously research, thought leadership. So uh, well, I'm uh, pleased to be with all of you today. My name is Eric Klaus. I am Canadian. I've spent most of my uh... A retail uh, career, uh, or most of my career in retail, uh, a lot of it in Canada, but uh, the last, uh, I guess, most of the last 15 years or so in the U.S. Um, I've done work for private equity firms, uh, basically always running retail. I've run from large public companies uh, in the U.S. Uh, I was on the board of directors of Rona, which we then sold to Lowe's. Um, and I guess my last gig of significance before um, MEC was... Um, Managing Save a Lot, which was about 1,400 discount stores operating in 37 states in the U.S. That was based in St. Louis, and we sold that to a large Canadian private equity firm. Um, after Save a Lot, did uh, three years of adventure tra- uh, travel, which I think unknowingly was prepping me for MEC. Um, I actually wasn't planning to come back to work, but uh, I'd worked actually with several projects with uh, Alex Wolf. Some of you may know him, who founded uh, Kingswood Capital Partners out of Los Angeles. Uh, he contacted me about Mac. Um, said, "You know, do you know the company?" I said, "Do I know it? I love it. I've been I've been a, a member since 1984." So, uh, long story short, you know, they were kind of if you would manage it, uh, his firm would buy it. So uh, here I am today, and a pleasure to be with you. Um, Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and Rens Pets. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, so I've always been in the sales and growth um, industry, and and either marketing or driving businesses. And if I went really far back to my days at university, I went to San Francisco University on a football scholarship and was going to be a teacher. So I got my teaching degree and never taught. And my mom was disappointed about that, but kind of always been interested in growing businesses, growing sales and marketing. And 
you know, now I've been at Rens for nine years. And when I started here, we were at three stories or three stores. And this is really about a growth story. You know, we're at 32 stores this year. We're opening seven more. We opened five in COVID last year. That was hard. You know, and we're fully omni-channel. So um, this kind of small pet retailer is now Canada's fastest growing pet retailer. Um, and I know we're doing well in omni-channel because we're Alexa's number one ranking Google site for pet. So we've done good there. And we get to do this all under the umbrella of your pet's best life. You know, Michael, I know you're a passionate pet owner. And uh, we get to do this trying to make pet parents and pets have their pet's best life. And you get to see puppies once in a while. Like this morning, I encourage you to go to my Facebook page. And, you know, I didn't expect it, but our VP of retail has a new puppy and she is full of it. And she came in today and, and we spent 10 minutes and it was a nice eight o'clock. My first meeting was with puppies. So we get to do that a lot at friends. That sounds like a great, a great job. Now, I was just on a uh, on a town hall in Moncton, New Brunswick. You have a location in in Dieppe, I believe, right? So that yes, is that your so most <laughs> most of your locations are in Ontario, though, right? Uh, the, uh, but tell us a little bit about that. So Ontario, yeah, one in Dieppe. Yeah, we're Oakville forty five six years now. We're actually just having a forty six anniversary sale. And a few years back, we went out to Ottawa four years ago and said, "Can we extend the brand there?" And that was a big step for rent. Everything had been mm-hmm. around our head office in Guelph. I live in Waterdown. A lot of people knew it here, but we got out to Ottawa. We have four stores really successful. And then we said, can we go to another region or another province? So yeah, we have three in the Maritimes and we're opening up our fourth in Fredericton. So love and Dieppe, you know, Moncton. I have a lot of family in Prince Edward Island and, and they make the trek over there to the Costco and the two uh, Nova Scotia, Halifax are great as well. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for that. All right. Well, let's, let's jump right in. Deanne, I'm going to start with you. Um, Statistics Canada released uh, the 2020 data on Friday and, and you know, for the year, uh, retail, uh, you know, shrunk. Uh, we see retail numbers on a month to month basis. And at a high level, it's interesting, right? Because at a high level, you know, November is up 13 percent year over year. December is up 3 percent. So it's kind of funny because at, at the very surface, you say, hey, what, what's going on? I thought retail was was a challenging place to be. What's really going on? Take us a level below the the headlines and and help people understand what's what's really going on in the retail sector uh, from from that tied to Armani coast to coast format to format kind of perspective. Um, I'll give you a, maybe an overview of 2020 because it it may be an indication of things to come, especially in the first quarter. Obviously, we're hoping that things will change going forward, but it's a tale of three worlds, Michael. You and I have talked about that. There, those retailers who outperformed the overall retail market. There are those who stayed afloat and saw a bit of growth. And then there are those who suffered throughout the year and continue to struggle. So in the three categories, the most obvious is those retailers who were considered essential throughout the pandemic. And we're talking as of you know March, early March of 2020. And that would include the grocery sector, um, pharmacy chains in general, so uh, pharmacy chains, and then um, a few of the other retailers that were fortunate enough during some of the lockdowns to be considered essential. Uh, we're not going to discuss the logic around that, but uh, indeed, uh, they they did much better. And when we're talking about food, we're not just talking about pure play, obviously, that includes some of the big mass merchants like uh, uh, Walmart, but also the Costco's, and oddly enough, the Dollaramas, the the dollar stores. 
there you go. We're talking about logic here. The second group is really the group of retailers who were fortunate enough, um, and I do say that because in many cases, those who are not fortunate uh, suffered not because of lack of good performance, but because of the the life, the, the, the changing lifestyle of consumers as they adapted to the pandemic. So the second group that did fairly well is the group that falls into electronics. You and I joked about how many TVs can you buy, how many more laptops and, and the likes can you buy. But that sector, obviously, and with the number of employees working from home, and that trend continues, that sector did well. Anything to do with furnishings for the home, both the home and the backyard. Uh, we all heard the stories about waiting three months to get a, a hot tub and not being able to get hot lamps for the backyard. And so those are categories that did extremely well. And there are obviously a few others, but let me focus very quickly on those that did not. Uh, and as I said, in some cases, mostly because of the shift in lifestyle, those uh, sectors that were affected the most were number one, apparel, number two, footwear. And then, you know, further down the line, we're talking about luxury cosmetics, jewelry, and, and the list goes on. But they, um, and in some cases, they uh, their losses were in the, you know, they were down 30% year over year, and in some cases, even worse. And we're seeing that they're still struggling. Now, in that category, I'm excluding and Eric can talk about that a bit more in a moment, but I'm excluding sporting goods because uh, of the outdoor economy. And one of the big shifts has been people exercising, people wearing sporting uh, clothing, more casual clothing. And so that sector has not been as affected as other sectors. And then I'll end by just saying, and the worst of, of all are those retailers who really depend on foot traffic uh, in the downtown cores with the major commercial offices and also transit. So um, that's a double whammy if you're in the fashion sector and much of many of your assets uh, rely on that foot traffic. And those are the ones who've been devastated. So unfortunately, it's an uneven story. Uh, we're, we're seeing that um, replay in the first quarter of 2021, specifically because we continue to deal with massive restrictions, capacity restrictions in most regions in the country, in some key sectors such as Toronto, Peel, and York, until recently, nearly 100 days of continued lockdowns in those sectors, highly uh, concentrated populations. And so that has an impact on retailers' bottom line. So that gives you an overview of what's happening. You know, I think the one thing that stands out and, and bears uh, a little bit of exploration in, in what you were talking about, just for folks less familiar, maybe they're based here uh, in Toronto, is the variability of the rules that retailers have to operate under right down to the municipal level, let alone the provincial level. I mean, you know, provinces like Alberta took a different tact uh, left everyone open, didn't declare essential, non-essential. Manitoba said you're essential, but you got to cover the stuff up in, in plastic or take it off, uh, you know. And then at the municipal level, there's all kinds of rules. It, it's such a an intense patchwork on a day-to-day basis. Uh, speak to that for a little bit. It, it, I know it keeps you and, and your your team intensely busy like, like never before at all three levels of government. 
And I think that's that's important for uh, those on the call to understand is um, there's certainly been, you know, a lot written about the cost, even those essential retailers have been reporting expenses, uh, increase, expense increases of up to 10%. And that is very much not only because of everything retailers have had to do to keep their employees and their customers safe, retrofitting stores, if their stores could be open, but also just the challenge of trying to manage um, your assets throughout the country with different rules. And, you know, BC, for example, has been pretty much open with very few restrictions throughout the pandemic. Similarly, in Atlantic Canada with the Atlantic bubble. And then the rest has been pretty much the Cirque du Soleil. I mean, just take a guess. And Ontario being the worst, because in Ontario, for those who may not know, even though the province sets guidelines, the municipalities have uh, jurisdictional powers. And so that's the reason why you could have two-thirds of the province open with capacity restrictions, and then the mayor of Toronto deciding that it, it will be extending the lockdown. We've seen that with the mayor's appeal and in, uh, in, in other regions. So extremely challenging for retailers that have several locations in different jurisdictions. So you can just imagine trying to manage your workforce, uh, manage your inventory, uh, and uh, and the like. So that, that continues to be um, a, a huge concern for us because it has, as we all know, certainly the retailers on this call can speak uh, to that in more detail, but it has a huge impact on your bottom line and your productivity. And that continues to be a concern. You know, welcome right. to our federation. And not that the U.S. is that much different. The states are also not harmonized, but, you know, Canada is only 10%. The population is not a huge market. You would hope that they could get their acts together, but that's the challenge. The the the, the powers are in at different levels of government, and that has exasperated uh, the confusion and the increased costs in managing your, your business, especially if you're in different jurisdictions. Yeah, thanks for that, Deanne. It's a great it's a great overview. It reminds me of the the work we did on plastic bags. You know, you'd have municipal municipalities all having different rules around bags, and and operators that literally across the street having different rules and trying to just you know it's it's a it's a nightmare of patchwork uh, regulation. Scott, um, you know, I've described the COVID era as either hitting retailers like a, a shockwave or a sledgehammer. The shockwave of demand or the the sledgehammer of store closures. You're you've kind of been the recipient of both. Uh, you and I've had a few late night phone calls about what's going to happen to my stores. Can I do curbside? Can I do this? Are we essential? Are we not essential? Uh, you know, good luck if you can't feed your pet. That's not going to go well in your household. And, um, you know, you've also got the big tailwind behind you of, of uh, the pandemic pets. So take us through a little bit of what your experience has been like uh, over the past here and, and a bit about the context of your business. So first, I just want to say thank you to Deanne because uh, we're new members on the re relatively new to Retail Council of Canada. I encourage anybody on the call today to look it up. You know, as a, as a retailer, we jumped right in there and got great communication and it, the quick um, updates were amazing. So I think that's been really beneficial for us in this last part of the wave and kind of understanding who's working for the retailers. So when you look at a kind of micro and close, Michael, there was times where it was up or down and it was really not good. You know, early on in April, pretty scary. And, you know, one of the things that kept coming up was cash flow management, be proactive, 
you know, the government was offering taxes and rebates and ways you could, you know, store cash. And we were doing relatively well, but we did that. We managed the cash flow so that if there was any type of extension or this went on longer, we wanted to make sure we were okay. And really, you know, 2020 was about, you know, I'd love to be high-fiving people today. Everybody knows I've got a lot of partners, retail partners on this call and our team, and I'll give you a virtual high-five. So thanks for being on today. But we couldn't do that in 2020, but it was still about the people. And, you know, and I know a lot of people, you say that your company is about your people, but sincerely, you had to deal with it with empathy and, and, you know, emotional intelligence because the retailers were getting it. It wasn't us. We were at that office. We were working from our homes. But the, the frontline workers and our staff, it was tough. And, and everybody went through different waves, personally and professionally. And so we really had to be managing that. And then products. You talked about a little bit of dog food. It's an essential and it's important. So our mandate at Rens was don't stop buying. Even though cash flow, we might not be seeing the sales in April where we wanted to. We needed to make sure that we we're going to have that product. And we, and we have expiries on our product. So we were nervous if we're not going to get back open. Are we going to be holding inventory that might not be sellable? But we said, we've got to have this food for the pets. So that's how we kind of approach that. And then the last thing I saw, and we've just seen this now in two waves, is that retail is relevant. Because when we've reopened our stores both times, I think three times now in different markets, the customers come back. Our, the digital was great, you know, but customers enjoy a safe, ex, you know, retail and they want a safe experience. My wife last week ran into the source to get something and just said hi to them, you know, and was so happy to be in a store. So I know people want in-store experience still and retail is relevant. And we've seen it twice now where they're coming back in droves. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a shopper as well as, as well as knowing you well. So I'm a, I'm a customer first actually before you and I, got to know each other. And, and one of the things that always impressed me about your organization, and I think it bears a little bit of discussion is, is, uh, you know, your e-commerce business and the way you go to market in a fairly competitive line of category, right? I mean, pets, pets has had a nice upswing to it, lots of new pets, but it's not like you don't have a lot of competitors at all kinds of different price points. So you've done well, but you've made some decisions to frame that. And then your e-commerce business uh, talk about that a little bit, because there's things you do in your e-commerce business that, that I think are helping you uh, be very, very, uh, very successful. So, again, there was no playbook. And back in March, we didn't know how um, impactful this would have been on the systems when you're sh- shifting all those purchases that people are manually making in store and replicating them online. Those thousands of touches was astronomical to you couldn't load test what happened in march april yeah but yeah. you know we've been on this kind of omni-channel kind of platform since 2016 so it wasn't a backup plan for us to get ready you know we had click and collect we were shipping across canada already um and we had been doing well on a growth trajectory for the last three years and this year it just was you know the canadian hockey stick curve but it really pushed the systems whether it's your csrs whether it's your checkout whether it's you know and the one thing I will say was probably the most impactful was inventory accuracy. Because if I walk into a store and you don't have this treat beef and you have chicken, I can just pick chicken. I see it, I pick it. But yeah. when you have all these people shopping online, you know, these onesie twosies can be very frustrating for customers. So I think going forward, you got to make sure the digital systems work. Everybody says they do. Um, they got stress tested now. So we've learned a lot. And then inventory accuracy for this omni kind of shopping online. Because even if I'm, you know, picking up in store, a lot of times they would purchase online. We might not have the product. So if the inventory is incorrect. So you really, I think going forward, we're going to have to make sure that, 
you know, if we want to have the pet's best life kind of mantra, we got to have the inventory and it's got to be accurate. And it, we got exposed in the digital world. And I think everybody did. Thanks, Scott. Eric, uh, you've been, uh, and in many ways, your organization is, is uh, not unlike pandemic puppies, uh, a bit of the recipient of a tailwind of, of the great outdoors and active wear. Uh, I think when Canadians think think of active wear, they think of Mac. You've been on a, a your organization has been on quite the journey. However, uh, how have you, you know, and you operate coast to coast, so you deal with this patchwork that Deanne and I talked about. So, give us a, a sense of your experience. Um, you know, when you took over the business, and you know, you're also changing the wheels at uh, flying sixty thousand feet uh, at the same time. So, give us a sense of of your experience in in the the pandemic and and in the COVID era so far. Um, yeah, I, I would probably echo a lot of what, what Scott has said and, and, uh, also, you know, appreciate the fact that we have RCC because that's kind of our, our connection to what's going on across the country. Um, but backing up to when we took over the business, I mean, it was a pretty gutsy move, uh, to take over a business, which was highly, highly, highly political in Canada, um, as it was a co-op and, 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 and really seen as kind of the, the, the gold standard in, in our sector and retailing, um, you know, to having a private equity firm out of the U S taking it over. So we had to deal with a lot of the, the, the politics, the, uh, the, the media, um, and then buying a business out of CCAA in the middle of a pandemic is not exactly the, you know, the, um, uh, the, 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 the walk in the daisies. It, it was, it was a pretty complex thing. Um, I would say it's a lot about people and it's a lot about um, ensuring that, that you really understand people, understand the effects of that all of this, the toll that it's taken on people and, you know, showing stability and showing that there's a plan. One of the, the most important things for us uh, was obviously not over leveraging the company, um, particularly in a situation like this. So just like Scott was talking about cash, you're obviously not coming in in these days and saying, okay, you know, I, I, your, your, your first thing you're not looking at is capital expenditure. So we came into a situation where, you know, the business had no credit, but we came in with a good balance sheet. So that really helped. It was all about communications with, you know, suppliers and lenders and banks and all kinds of things to ensure that people understood that we actually had the balance sheet to, to move forward. Um, uh, POs had been canceled. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden you're in this industry, which is on fire, but you've got two issues. One is you've got no stock in all the things that have been canceled. And then there's an industry-wide complete shortage. So if you take, for example, bicycles, snowshoes, anything that's outdoors, I mean, today, some of our bike parts have a 600-day lead time. So, it, it, you know, it sounds pretty sexy. It sounds pretty good to be in, in, the, uh, in, in, this, in this space. And it is. It's not a bad space to be in. But you've got to be really, really nimble and you've got to figure out ways to do things that you would not have done them before. You, you've got to you, – you really have to expand your buying base, your supplier base, um, because certain suppliers just have nothing. You can buy up everything that you can in Canada. Um, so it's, it's, it's been, you know, a, a good and bad news story. Uh, mostly good since we've taken it over the the ecom part of it uh, obviously on fire uh, we were fortunate that there was already a pretty robust uh, ecom platform uh, in the business and one of the things that we did to help alleviate some of the stresses at the store level while keeping teams 
is that we also have the ability to do a lot of ship from store for our e-com. Mm. It's not necessarily the most profitable, um, but it keeps people busy in store. So, if, you know, you, you need to keep a core of personnel. And I'm sure that Scott has probably run into some of the same issues that we have is it's very difficult when people are being paid a lot of money to stay at home, when people are afraid to, to work in retail you know, to staff up stores and you have to staff up quickly with all these, you know, op openings and closures. And, you know, one week you're open, the next week you're closed, you're laying people off, you're, 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 you're doing a lot of stuff. So, you know, all told, I think we navigated pretty well through it. So we've had, um, you know, from a financial point of view, we've, we've actually exceeded uh, all of our expectations, both on the top and bottom line, since we've owned, we've only owned it for a short period of time, but so far so good. Um, and uh, uh, you know the, the 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 closure opening thing it was very complicated. For example, uh, uh, Zian was talking about this whole Ontario thing just in the past few weeks. So we bring back people for two of our larger stores in on Queen Street in Toronto and North York to be told two days later that guess what, you're not opening. So now to go lay off people, they're basically, and, and you're talking about people that are not making a lot of money. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're going to be out of pocket if you lay them off another week before they can get unemployment insurance. So we took the stand that no, we will bring them on. We'll keep them on. We'll just find other work that we can give them to do inventory cycle counts, whatever it is. So it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big toll on people um, yes, we are in the right business and that bodes well for us. You know, we've got things back on track, but again, we suffer the same issues that everybody else has containers out of Asia. You know, we've got suppliers that are, that are booking 747 cargo jets to, to fly in footwear, you know, so a lot of things drive up the cost. We, we, you know, there's delays in all of the spring goods. Um, but you know, I, I mean, at the end of it all, it still works out. If you look at the mix between the retail and the, um, uh, and the e-com, it's still, it's, it's a, it's a good business. And, and I would say that, you know, we're holding our own quite well, actually, uh, probably better than, better than most right now. Well, and you raised several good points and, and we'll go into them a little later. I mean, I, as I often have said, talking to executives like yourself and Scott, the, the supply chain is harder to start than it is to stop. And, uh, you know, many retailers were concerned about liquidity in the first, uh, first lockdowns. And then, and then, you know, it's a global phenomenon. I, I don't know if we need to remind everybody that this, this isn't a Canadian phenomenon. This is happening around the world. Uh, and that the, there's pressure on every node of the supply chain. Uh, so thanks for kind of articulating that for us. Dave, let me bring you in the, in the conversation. And, and uh, you know, you introduced Poirier and Associates, but you didn't really introduce yourself. And uh, you and I worked together at Hudson's Bay. Uh, what is it now? 20 years ago, if you can believe that. Uh, I was I was 15 or, or 14. Uh, you were you're a little bit older, um, but you're not only just, you know, not just, but you, you not only have the lens of the consulting space and looking into retail, you have it from as a retailer looking outwards, right? You, you've been in those rooms, you signed those checks, you've made those decisions, you've built those teams. As you look at the industry in general, you know, at that 10,000 foot, what are your observations about how you've seen retailers react and respond uh, and through the through the first uh, wave or the first phase of the COVID era, well, I think uh, Dan brought up a great point that there are those three three categories of people: the ones that were thriving, the ones that that uh, sur were surviving, and and the ones that were diving. And um, 
you know, all of them reacted as best they could in the circumstances. And I think it was a, a, a great move by a lot of the retailers. Most of the focus was on, you know, keep the doors open, keep the product moving as best as possible, find alternatives to the, to the broken supply chains that many organizations had. I mean, who, who would have thought that, that, uh, you know, yeast and tarpaulins and home, uh, hair grooming kits would have something in common, uh, as they did last year with all the shortages that we were facing. It was quite bizarre as we worked through all of those cycles of people figuring out what to do at home. Um, and, and I think the retailers reacted as best they could focused on the top line and on, on cash management, not necessarily focused on the bottom line. So I think there was a, Tremendous effort of saying, "Hey, get at uh, the um, the problems that we're facing right now. Let's fix them as best we can." It got into a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole of you know six new problems a day that and fires that that people were trying to put out. Uh, but I think retailers did an enormous job of of uh, responding to that. Now, as we're getting used to it and seeing that life can carry on at least uh, in the interim. Uh, for many of, of the retailers, it's how do we do that more efficiently and effectively? Because eventually we're going to have to look at the bottom line here and eventually it's coming very soon. And so right. I, I see a shift in the thinking right now around how do we manage this business sustainably in a profitable way that enables us to also take care of, of the shareholders in here and make sure that when there are further disruptions, and I think everybody knows there, there will be a one time type or another, even after COVID, uh, how can we better uh, weather through those circumstances? You know, one of the things you what you and I have talked about uh, quite often is decision-making processes. And one of the things that uh, several executives have mentioned to me is, is they wish they could capture or have a, an essence of capturing the speed of decision-making that was the characteristic of many retailers in the early part of the pandemic. And you do a lot of work around how organizations make decisions, how processes form decisions and strategy. What 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 did you observe from that perspective? I, you know, we're you know, I saw things stood up in retail that that people have been hemming and hawing about for for years. Even sending all their employees home and literally in a week suddenly became possible. Um, is 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 that a um, is that something that's a reaction? Or do you think you think that some of that's going to stick? Uh, I, I think some of it's going to stick. I, I I see that we've. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of innovation over the last year uh, in retail, but I don't think it's that retailers are more innovative than they were before. I think there are other factors around that. One of them is just the the need for urgency to respond to the, the existing circumstances. So the level of trust that people had to put into the front lines mm-hmm. to execute on things. And, and I think the, the risk profile changed. So the risk of doing nothing was far greater now or over the past year than the risk of taking on new initiatives. And so that as that risk profile changed, people were mm-hmm. more willing to say, you know what, we'll probably, we probably won't get it right, but let's just do it anyway. And so I, I think that was another big piece of it. And the, the other big piece is um, nothing like a good crisis to create alignment within an organization. And so that, yeah. that alignment, the, the trust up and down the organization I saw took a dramatic increase uh, during the, the pandemic. And I think to some extent remains now. It's it's come off a little bit in the last few months from, from what I've seen in organizations. Uh, but I think if we can 
keep that focus on the risk profile and we've moved to scenario planning. You know, and I've seen organizations spending hundreds of thousands of dollars preparing annual budgets uh, that are locked down or three-year budgets for that matter that are that are locked down with reasonable certainty. Uh, that's gone out the window now. It's far more about scenario planning and looking to to a reasonable horizon of what we see in the future and what could possibly happen. And so that forces us to be more nimble, get rid of some of the bureaucracy that we've had in organizations in the past and and work through those scenario plans and risk management that's far more agile than it has been in the past. While we look for those alternatives in the supply chain area, I think that's a great example where, you know, we've been tightening down things in the supply chain for the last 20 years, finding every dollar of efficiency that we could possibly find. But what we ended up with was a, a rigid supply chain. And so when there was a disruption, it broke. And so now instead of having the, the, the uh, supply chain being optimal, we're looking at the supply chain being optional. What do we do in the event it's disrupted and how do we work around it? And so I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of creative thinking that has been unleashed as a result of it. It existed before, but now it's allowed to actually get out there and and be tested in a way. I think we'll con- see that innovation continuing, maybe not at the, to the same extent, but I think we'll see that innovation continuing within organizations and the, the risk profile uh, staying changed, uh, maybe not quite so much as what we saw over the last year, but but certainly increased from from what we've seen in the past. Well, and you mentioned that magic word agile and, and, you know, from a, a, a technology group that adopts agile to an organization that can stay more agile, you know, I think may, that may be one of those things that sticks is this, you know, wow, this agility work. We, uh, we can't predict the future. Uh, we all, and we won't be able to predict the future. So maybe we build an organization that's more agile, uh, in the, with a capital A, I could say. Um, Scott, I want to get back to you. I want to talk about e-commerce because I, I think the folks uh, listening, um, and Eric, I've got a question about e-commerce for you as well as a, as a kind of a veteran operator. Um, e- e-commerce in Canada, StatsCan reported up 70.5% year over year, which is probably under-reporting it uh, for a variety of, of reasons. You do things on your website uh, from a, you know, it's not just around putting a product online and selling it. There's a lot of moving parts that you do. And, and, you know, for example, uh, you know, subscription services, uh, discounts and, and talk about your merchandising strategies, um, or the tactics that, that come together to make a very robust site that, that is a winning proposition when there's so many other options online. Uh, and, you know, there's so many other, uh, chances of, of, uh, of getting to the customer. Well, I think you have to figure out what the customer wants. And we had this conversation yesterday in a board meeting. Why not ask the customer? So we were coming up with all these ideas. So <laughs> surveying is really good. I know what they want first. And an auto ship is something they want. But it ha- like I said, there's so many levels within auto ship. And I think when the digital world, you can really get pulled down with doing a bunch of things. So you have to figure out what your short track and your kind of long track is and your UX improvements are going to be meaningful. And, you know, we want to do puppy registries and, and some really cool things that we're getting. But auto ship's the most important. Make sure it works. Make sure, you know, the back order report works on it. So a little thing like letting them know when we're back in stock. That's key for somebody that needs their dog food, right? So these are the yeah. things that we're working on because we're seeing our product as essential. And 66% of pets need some type of specialty diet. So they're coming to us for a reason for the assortment. If we're out, it might be a function of our supplier. It might be a function of demand pantry yeah. loading you know there's a yeah. lot there 
um, but making sure that we kind of keep enhancing what's really important. So I, I think when you brought up auto ship, just keep making that one better. That's really going to move the needle. And all the UX and functions, we've seen, you know, one, 2% increase, which was crazy, giving some really good enhancements. And that's important. So, and then there's that laundry list. So making sure your website doesn't get bogged down. And I've been reading what gets measured recently and kind of your objectives and key results. And it's like, what's everybody working on? Because we had something in December come up, a real situation where that wasn't a priority and we spent a lot of time on it. So we just want to make sure everybody's aligned what the customer wants and that everybody's working on that in alignment. My, Michael, can I just jump in? Because I think Scott made a good point. And for those listening and especially those investing in retail, one of the things to look at is, is what Scott just uh, talked about is reaching out to customers because you and I talked about um, the customer behavior has changed so much that if retailers are relying on pre-COVID customer behavior data, they're making a huge mistake. And in fact, that data is a decaying asset on your balance sheet. And so the greatest challenge, but the most important thing for retailers to do, and I think Scott, Eric, and others have done very well, is, is pivoting very quickly and understanding, as I think Eric said, there's no playbook. So like truly looking at customer behavior, reaching out to customers on a weekly basis and looking at that behavior because you cannot base a lot of what's happening today on the past. And that's going to be one of the greatest challenges, but also one of the greatest assets for those retailers who can pivot quickly and refresh what I would call, you know, consumer behavior data. Well, and our friend uh, Brian Pearson uh, from Air Miles described this as the biggest jump ball moment in retail history for good or ill, right? So consumers are making, I saw some statistics, 45% of consumers said they've shopped from a retailer they've never shopped from before. They bought a brand they've never tried before. I mean, those are numbers you never see, right? You This circuit breaker of consumer behavior has really impacted uh, you know, maybe they, they're shopping because they couldn't find what they're looking for, but maybe they're shopping because they're working from home and they're not going to, like, I live in Mississauga. I can't, you know, on a hand, I can't count the number of times I've been to Toronto to go shopping. So it's, you know, it's very local plus e-commerce. Now we got a couple of questions from, uh, from the audience. I wanted to just jump in and then I, we go, we, then we'll launch our first uh, polling question, Mike. So let's, uh, first couple of questions from the audience. Um, Eric, you and Scott have both mentioned, but I'm going to throw this one, Eric, to you first. Um, the role of vendors and suppliers. So one of the questions from the audience is, is, is how, uh, they didn't ask it this way, but how do you be a partner, not a mercenary? How do you be a great vendor in such a difficult, <laughs> such a difficult time? <laughs> it's not an easy question because they're going through the same issues we are. So they've got their supply issues. I, you know, I, I, I think one thing is candor, like, you know, don't just be the good news fairy. Um, let us know what's really going to happen because you get a lot of, particularly on the selling side of things. Um, I don't know if it's a natural trait of salespeople, but they don't like to give you bad news. Um, you know, let us know what's really, really going to happen. Um, work with us to be able to get product to stores in ways that may be a little more expensive to you, but you know, they get them there on time. Um, and and I, I, I think most of it is just really working as uh, as partners, and many of them have supply in our industry, anyways, have supply issues. So 
you know, you know, be fair with be fair with your with your client group because you can't just favor one because they're a stronger or a bigger player than the other and, and uh, ensure that you're equitable around the uh, around the table. But I think for the most part, they're you know they're they're really good. I mean, they're doing their best. They're bending over backwards. Um, and I think if you've got a good relationship with your supplier base and it's not just a one-way relationship, uh, for the most part, they're doing what they can do. Um, and again, it's not easy for them. It's not easy for anybody. Scott, you're I just I throw, throw in here because you're you're a, a a relative niche player, though you're 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 you know you you punch above your weight for sure in terms of, of market presence. But when you talk to vendors, you know how are you finding the experience, and and what's your advice? If I was a vendor, what would you say would be similar to Eric? Just tell me the truth and and don't uh, and don't sugarcoat it. Or you know, how do you manage uh, the channel relationships now that are so uh, so complex? Well, I think the relationships are built on your past history, right? So the lesson to be learned here is how you treat your partners. Do you pay on time? Do you give them a heads up? You know, are you in communication with them? And we've worked really hard with our partners because we've been a growth story. So they've been excited to work with us, but it's got to be good for both, right? They've got to make money and, and they've got to see those POs coming. They've got to be excited and you got to deliver on your promises. So, you know, if they're going to give you buy-ins and different deals and stuff like that, they deliver and have sell-through. So I think really the message going forward, what's the learnings? Because if this happens again, can you leverage your partners? Some retailers probably couldn't. They weren't good pairs. They were always banging their fists. They were always, you know, not being a good partner that way. And they probably lived through some of the pain, which maybe they wish they would have developed those relationships better. I don't want to say we were perfect, but we really do have a good partnership and believe in the brands and the assortment that we have. So I think that helped us through this to have those first calls. And there was a lot that were fulfillment rates were, you know, 97 and 99, usually getting in the sixties and, but they were struggling with their staff and COVID. So it wasn't an easy call to have, but you really had to be sympathetic and say, you know, we use the line, this too shall pass. So with us, we just kept trying to change the conversation. Mm -hmm. We hear you, we hear your staff, but what's going to happen next and kind of move forward. But Another question from the audience, and Scott, I'll start it back to you because uh, I've been in your wonderful stores. They're not small; they're very they're big, wonderful stores. The question asked is: is you know, is online this seventy percent growth? Is this you know, whatever it is, fourteen, sixteen percent of retail sales today? Is it the end of the trend of bigger box stores? And um, what do you, what do you think about how does how do stores fit in your strategy? And um, or are we even asking the wrong question? Are we even should we even be looking at how consumers look at things rather than a format discussion? How do you, how do you look at that? So like Eric, we're relevant right now. We're in a good vertical, but if we weren't a good retailer, our stores would not be relevant. And I think, you know, your store footprint, you have to look at it. What's the relevance we've added 75% of our stores now all have walk-in freezers up to 16, 20 doors. That was an emerging category that we got behind four or five years ago. So you have you can't just say, oh, raw is really important right now, frozen food, and be there. So creating revenue, we added scales to all of our stores. We've done a lot of things. You can come in and weigh your pet. You know, going to the vet, you got to make an appointment, and it's cumbersome. You can walk into us anytime we're open from 10 to 9 at night on weekends and weigh your pet. So that's a great experience, something you can't have online. So really the way we're looking at it is they're enhancing them. And our crossover customer is still low. And like I said, as soon as we updated, updated or got back open, those customers came back. And I think the reason was, you know, caring staff and knowledge. Well, you can get that online, but not that personal touch. And then we have some categories that, um, much like Mac, 
you got to go in and touch and feel them, the collars, the leashes, the harnesses. So those are relevant. Make sure those assortments are good. They're robust and they're, you know, moving forward. So I think looking at your assortment and making sure you have something that's relevant in a store versus online. Another question for the audience along the same theme. So I think there's some some curiosity in the audience around uh, online versus physical stores. Eric, um, as a do you see stores as a strategic advantage or something to be phased out? And and that's not the audience's question, but I'm going to put it kind of a black and white. How do you how do you see the intersection integration of online, and how do you operationalize that? How do you make that real? Yeah. So this this one I'm really opinionated on, and. Uh, um, I don't really know Scott, but I'm totally aligned with him. When we bought this business, I know that from a high level, there were a lot of people looking at this that wanted to shut, you know, half of the stores. I think if you're in a commodity business where it really doesn't matter, you could go to ABC or D retailer or, or vendor, you're buying something that's a commodity, it doesn't matter. If you're in any way, shape, or form, a specialty type of retailer like Scott's business or like our business, there's a huge, huge advantage of having both the online and the store. We intentionally, when we bought the business, only shut down one store. And going through CCAA, we had the opportunity with no cost to to not accept any lease if we wanted to. And we specifically took 20 out of 21, which is great from a people point of view. Um, but, you know, it, from a, from a, purely business point of view, uh, some really interesting things that have happened that I've, that I've realized. So for example, Quebec just opened up uh, two weeks ago. Purchases made before Christmas that people did not want to return to the e-com never, never land. <laughs> and they've been waiting since Christmas and brought the return. Not that we're happy to open up and get a lot of returns, but it showed the confidence that our customers right. and members had in the business and they have confidence in coming back to a store because they feel that they can actually they're, – they're not sending it into this vacuum somewhere. It's going to disappear. There's a, there's a physicality to it, right? There's a presence. And returns are a great example, right? It, and it's a great strategic advantage, I think, to, yes. to have that connection, right? And we see often in our stores where people come in for advice and then buy online uh, and, or vice versa. They come into the store. For example, you want to buy a kayak. This actually happened to me a couple of years ago before I was even involved with Mech. I went and spent a few hours with the knowledgeable people in the store. They didn't have the kayak there, but they had it in the online shop. So I could order it online and get it in because online is like an extended aisle. So you have, you can have a much broader assortment. Um, there, there's just, there's so many interactions between our e-com business and our stores. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost mind boggling. And, and to me, um, you know, outside of commodities and, and, and this, I think is a big point. You know, when I, I've seen a lot of private equity firms, many of them are, you know, driven and, and run by uh, a, a very young generation uh, that is very, very in tune to online um, and that believe that e-com is the end all for retail. It's not. Again, it depends on the, on the retail. So I think you really have to be careful if you're looking at a business and give value to that bricks and mortar because the connection between the bricks and mortar and the online uh, is a big deal. And often online, we get a lot of hits where people are doing shopping, they're getting product knowledge, then they come to the store to confirm it. Um, the, the Anyways, in our business, I can tell you for sure 100% that there's a huge interaction between the two. And one would not work nearly as well without the other. And um, um, so for us, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a great duo. 
it's like a distinction without a difference basically it, it is the modern case of retail don't think about a store the online store the channel store think about the customer they just move back and forth and back and forth and as you described just from your behavior right shop yep. online shop and store return online bopus boris uh you know let's throw some acronyms out because we've been a little acronym light thank you to, again to all the panelists for for sticking with us it's really wonderful uh it's been a great conversation and thank you for your generous uh generous uh time and dave for for generously uh being able to present us um, Deanne, I want to throw it to you, and, and this, we're kind of in the last phase here. We've got a group of people trying to understand, you know, we've given them a thorough understanding of the trends in business, what makes retailers tick. Dave, you talked about, you know, starting to unsurface, you know, things beyond just the numbers on the spreadsheet. Um, 25 years in this business, Deanne, and advocating for retailers, you know, non-essential, essential. Give me a sense of how the industry is viewing the recovery. So uh, the retailers... Um, you know, in the NRF yesterday announced that they think it's going to come bolting out, you know, just the, the biggest recovery in 20 years once the vaccine. How, how are we thinking about and how are you thinking about the industry ahead, ahead, post-COVID and, and from now till then? Well, I reflect some of the optimism that was reported by National Retail Federation. I find sometimes, you know, it could be a, 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 a south of the border effect of uh, a bit of too much Hollywood, not enough reality, but saying that uh, there is definitely going to be, if you want to call it a boom, and Michael, I think we all know, as well as the people on the call, there's an enormous amount, uh, there's pent up demand. We've never seen uh, consumers save so much, pay off um, credit card debt at the level that we've seen in, in 2020. You know, the, the, the majority of the debt that most of consumers are carrying now relate to mortgages. So it's what we would call cheap debt to a certain extent. So not only is there pent up demand because people have been isolated, but there's a lot of discretionary spending. So we are expecting, assuming, assuming that we don't go in a third wave and we don't see additional lockdowns or tighter restrictions, we are expecting second and third quarter to be very strong. What we, be, we will be looking at, though, which I think the NRF report lacks, is the uh, as people get vaccinated, we think there may be a shift, and that will be key for retailers to, to gauge. There will be a shift of discretionary spending from product to service. Let's face it, all of us want to be able to travel. We may not be able to travel internationally, but there will be we believe, an increase in intra-Canada travel. So that means that that money will go there. Think of when restaurants begin to open, especially as the weather gets better with patios. So some of that money will shift eventually back to the service sector, maybe not to the same extent as it was pre-COVID because we don't suspect cruise ships will, will dock in Vancouver anytime soon. But saying that, that's what we're seeing for the uh, around the fourth quarter. And then the other underlying measure that we're watching carefully is that while uh, everyone is optimistic for the rest of the year, we're looking at unemployment numbers because let's face it, we rely, all of us, on consumers in different brackets of income. And so we're watching all of the um, Canadians who have lost their jobs, specifically in the service sector, but in sectors that have been hit and will take a couple of years to recover. Talk uh, hospitality. 
Uh, so hotel accommodation, cruise ships, uh, and the like. So our, uh, you know, what we're hearing from from retailers is they're expecting renewed activity, lots of traffic, um, lots of growth. But they're also being cautiously optimistic because they believe that some of the dollars that would have gone towards retail may move into what I call service um, sector uh, spends. So that's quickly the outlook. You know, it's, it's, and you and I have talked about this. Deanne and I do a live stream every Wednesday night for Retail Council of Canada members. And, and one of the things I've been tracking is the vaccine because, you know, the vaccine and the variant have, and its timing has a very important impact on retail. Like when our lives start to return to normal, is it September or is it, you know, is it later or is it earlier? I mean, and, and it will trigger both maybe shifts in how people spend more vacations, more travel, more services, and also shift probably what they spend. Uh, Eric, I wanted to throw a question to you. And then, Dave, I'm going to ask you the same question. For the audience, you know, the private equity world, you touched on something that I wanted to pull a thread on a little bit. You know, you said, you know, generally in um, this world, you've got folks who are steeped in uh, online. They, uh, they may look, they're experts in looking at numbers. Is it all just about looking at numbers when you, when you evaluate retail opportunities? When you, when you look at the numbers on a page and, and make your decision, is it that binary or, or do you think there's other things that, that you would advise they look at? No, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of businesses with uh, private equity uh, uh, people and, you know, obviously just about everyone when they're looking at a business, they always bring in an industry expert. But that aside, I, I think, especially if you're looking at buying businesses today, it's there's a there's a huge amount of people chasing very few businesses. And, you know, in, in, in many cases, if you're looking at retailers, there's a strategic that can pick up a business and has synergies that can outbid the private equity from the numbers are just not going to work. I think private equity has got to look at, you know, businesses that have more either a very unique or, or have specific problems that make them too complex for some of the larger strategics to get involved. Ours is a really good example, a business that, you know, was a co-op that, that has this, you know, a, a kind of a, a public image that, that's, that's very fragile, that's very, very public. So I, I think you really, really need to, you know, look at the secret sauce and you can't go in with that idea that, you know, I'm a finance person. Oh, you know, the salary should be, you know, 8% or 10% or 12 or 13% of, of, of sales. And, you know, I'm just going to cut this and do this and I get to cut my way to profitability. It doesn't work that way. And, and I, and I've seen people go in with predetermined ideas. I've seen it with my past retailer in the down South where private, private equity comes in with a, with a preconceived idea of what should be without understanding what the business is and what the secret sauce is. And if you don't take the time to understand the business and understand the people and also give value to the people um, and, and don't underestimate the, you know, the, the, the value of that depth of knowledge of people that have been around for a while. Sure, you need a mix of young and old and, you know, diverse and everything else. But I've seen so often in my career where people go in with these preconceived ideas. Um, you know, they're, they're the smartest people on the planet and, and many are extremely intelligent. But you can be book smart, you can be street smart. And if you want to buy a good retailer, you better be street smart and book smart. And then you can make it work. 
Well, speaking of street smart and book smart, Dave, let me bring you in on this. Uh, I think you said 50%, give or take, of your business is connected in some way, shape, or form to, to private equity. You're often on the phone with uh, clients, prospective clients who call you in. When you go into these you know, retailers, what are you looking for beyond the numbers, which you, know, you can get in a data room or whatever, pull with your, your teams together? But you know, you're, you're, you, in my work with you, culture is so important to you. And how do you look at that? And, and what's your advice around looking at a business from that perspective? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we know pretty well, or I know pretty well, if I walk into a retailer from end to end, you know, what opportunities there are in supply chain and warehousing and in store operations and merchandising administration. And uh, being in as many retailers as we have, we've got a pretty good sense of what the upside opportunities are on that. But I, Eric really touched on it. I think the two things that uh, are most difficult for an investor to read, uh, unless they've had experience in it, are the, the character, the, the, sorry, the, the culture and the ethos of an organization, So that the, which can really create a, a uniqueness uh, for the customer experience. So MEC is a great example of that. It had a very different uh, culture and ethos to uh, to other organizations that sell the same products uh, or very similar products. So as a result of that, it it made sense as long as that was captured and and embraced uh, to take it into private equity. Much less to bring it into an organization uh, that's a strategic buyer because the the culture mixes are very difficult to to maintain uh, in organizations. Mm-hmm. I've seen that through a number of of acquisitions that we've seen where uh, by the acquirer, there's just uh, they just can't resist getting in there and playing with it a little bit and uh, changing the management in a way that think, they think optimizes the skill set but doesn't necessarily uh, mm-hmm. optimize the, that ethos or culture of the organization. And it doesn't take much for that to unravel. And we've mm-hmm. got a lot of that that has come been built through uh, through the pandemic as well. You know, a, there was a very positive spirit in the beginning. It's had a few bumps along the way, but I think those organizations that really focused on it have actually come out stronger as a result. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, you know, as is often the case, right? Uh, strategy, culture trumps uh, strategy, as, as, it, it is, as it is often said. A uh, yeah. question from the audience. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, Scott, I'm going to throw this one to you because um, I think it's pretty, it's very relevant to your category. And it's a question about um, as e-commerce grows, how do you manage the profitability? So, uh, you know, unit economics, in my experience, still matters. Uh, you've got, you know, you've got pure play retailers uh, around the world who, uh, who report that they don't make any money. Uh, it is not the easiest thing to make money in online sometimes. But a- how do you manage profitability in your channels? Uh, and uh, particularly when you've got commodities like uh, like I order from you, which is, you know, 50 pound bags of dog food. But at the same time, ordering, you know, probably high value treats. Walk me through how you manage that and how you think about ROI and profitability in the online channel. Yeah, I will. And I want to comment just one thing on the private equity before I get into there. I, I think that where you have the strategics and, and listen to Eric, they're going to come in and look for economies and supply chain and all the regular stuff and how can they buy better. But the private equities, I was thinking about that question and the message for them is a lot of these companies have a good culture and they have really good people, much like Brands does. And I've heard the term like professionalism and not in a bad way. It's like we don't know what we don't know because we haven't had those experiences. Eric's ran a lot of companies have been around, but I haven't. 
So I looked for those experiences and that's where I think private equities can come in and not look for the safe necessarily, the strategic kind of alignment. They can look where, where can we position these people better on their balance sheet and cash flows. And that doesn't have to be tyrannical. It just has to be, hey, we can help you here. You got a good company, but here's some of the things we've learned with other companies and private equities have the lens into many retailers. And in this uh, era of pandemic, they got to see which verticals were doing well and saying, hey, we're getting this over here. You guys should try this. You should try this. This is not working well. Rents are coming down. We saw this success. So, and that kind of went into Omnichannel as well. And we, conversations are, how can we leverage that or learn? So with Omnichannel specifically, it goes back to partners. It's expensive. Canada is a big landscape. Eric's stuff would be the most expensive to ship around as, as kayaks. Dog food isn't uh, very good either. But we went to our partners originally and said, hey, this is going to be for good for all of us. So how can you help us? So the Omnichannel, can you help us there with these discriminatory SKUs that are selling online and help us with the margins there? Because it doesn't make sense. You go back to your couriers and you say, here's our run rate. We're going to be a good partner with you. How do you help us? But we're going to need some help to get going. And they have helped us. And then it's the supplies and everything and efficiencies and write down. And it goes back to technology and simple things. As we're growing up, we had products in our warehouse, and this is just operational, that were in every different aisle from the same distributor. So you take it over here, and it's nine skids, and you're moving all around. And we're like, why don't we put this distributor in this aisle? It's like goods, makes sense, and we can put this away in an hour as opposed to four hours. Other little things to make omnichannel its labor is we started ordering specifically to fit in the slots. And this is nothing new to a bunch of retailers, but we had to get better at putting stuff up. That's not making us any money. It's got to go in the slot. We got to have the right amount of inventory. Maybe get it more often and turn it instead of buying a lot of it. So I think you really had to look at it differently. No, it's a great answer. And, and uh, you know, listen, it's been a great discussion. It's 1244. So uh, you've all been so generous with your time. And I, I want to thank you. Such great insights. I learned something every time I talk to all of you. So I feel like I get more out of this than, than anyone else. But uh, thank you so much for your generosity, your time. Uh, sharing and, and your insights and uh, thank you everyone for joining us today so I just want to say thanks personally to uh, Deanne, Eric, Scott and David for their insights, I learned a lot today, you know, great to, great to hear the, the news behind what we're hearing in, in the news and the media right now and of course Michael for your insightful questions and uh, the polling questions as well which is interesting to see that, uh, that information it'd be interesting to have everyone back and six to eight months to see how we have rebounded and come out of the, the current market conditions to see where we're at. Um, so I just want to say thanks to our series sponsors, Grant Thornton, Castles and Hub, and of course to David and the Poirier Group for presenting today and being part of uh, the content development. Uh, it's been great. We, uh, we really love to hear from, what you know, in terms of what's going on in the retail sector, and I'm sure that for our audience online, particularly those on the investment side and the private equity side, uh, they probably picked up some, uh, some good insights today. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Voice of Retail. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the latest episodes, industry news, and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review as it really helps us grow so that we continue to get amazing guests onto the show. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at melablanc.co. Until next time, stay safe and have a great week.